So where are you? You're in some motel room? You just you just wake up and you're in, in a motel room. There's the key. It feels like maybe it's just the first time you've been there, but perhaps you've been there for a week, three months. It's it's kinda hard to say. I don't I don't know. It's just an anonymous room. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen. It's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, it's a movie that at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 144, and our movie this week was 2000's Memento, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, and here to talk with me about it because he had never seen it before, Dice Tomato. How you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, it is. It has been a journey with this movie. <laughs> so... So you were familiar with the movie prior to seeing it, but you just never had taken the time to watch it? Or like, what's the story behind not having seen it for 20 years? Well, I, I, I knew the movie existed. Um, but no, I've known nothing about it. I haven't sought to hear any information about it from anybody else. So I haven't really asked anybody, hey, what's this movie about? Okay. Um, I've, the, the most I've heard over the 20 years is that... Uh, it's it's one of those challenging films. Um, not that that's turned me away from it. I just I have I haven't heard anybody be like, "Oh my god, it's the greatest movie ever!" You have to, I haven't heard that. So it's okay. kind of been it. So it never. I never knew anybody that like owned it on DVD back when you know DVDs were a thing. Okay. So it was never a movie I picked up. So for me, this was one I saw. Let's see, it came out in two thousand. I probably saw it. Maybe oh one. I did not see it in theaters, but I did see it early on in uh, I think a rental. Actually, is how I first saw it. But this was a movie for me for friends of mine that we did talk about quite a bit because it was one of those kind of film school movies. It was the movie that film buffs all had to watch. Um, yeah, I could see that. It's an early Christopher Nolan, as I mentioned, uh, who went on to be very prolific and have a lot of big. Big movies. Um, this is not a and, big movie, but go ahead. And and that's the thing. I did not know it was a like I went into this movie as blind as anybody could ever go into any movie, not knowing that even it was a Christopher Nolan movie. Like you know, seeing his name on the opening credits, I was like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that that makes me did, think did, that you are not a Nolan fan. Uh, I don't hate him, uh, but no, I'm not a fan. What? Okay, so what is it about? Um, Nolan's films that you had seen, especially prior to this one, that you don't love? Um, I think it is at some level there has to be a bit of uh, mental hoops and preparation you kind of have to put yourself through in order just to even be ready for, to ingest any of his, any of his films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the one Nolan movie I've seen that I hated the least was interstellar okay uh i thought interstellar was okay um it had a weird kind of odd ending and the brother character seemed kind of an odd character for the story because he ended up kind of only just being there to make sure the house still existed for the story later on Mm -hmm. uh but outside of that yeah it was fine It it was good fun 
so Nolan is an interesting director in that he has his own kind of language for film and he's going to yes. do the things that are interesting to him. And he's yes. very much, he can come off as, and definitely interview as very pretentious and very kind of, uh, full of, you know, believing his own press in a lot of ways. I think what it comes down to with him from, from, cause I've read some statements of his that I'm like, Ooh, man, that's just a, that's a rough thing to hear, you know? kind of ripping on people watching stuff at home. But then I, I think about it and I realize one artists are always kind of out there anyway, but he's got a very clear vision of what he wants in the experience of watching a movie. And as an experience, it's more than just telling a story. He wants it to be a thing. One of the things with this movie that I read about where he said, um, this movie came out in 2000 and what was happening a lot was there was a lot more people watching movies at home at that point, even. Um, and it yeah, okay. definitely not to the level that we are today, but there was a lot more right, of it right. and a lot, a lot less of only watching films in a the theater and height of DVD proliferation and things yep. like blockbuster video and so on. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so what he was doing was he wanted to make, he wanted to have a movie that sort of defied the pizza delivery scenario, which was you're watching something on TV and the pizza gets delivered. You got to get up, go deal with getting the pizza, pay the person, come back in, you've missed three to four minutes or whatever you're watching. So television is often structured to allow for that, allow for somebody to get up and move around. Yeah. And the commercial breaks. Yeah. And, and what he was noticing was that, or at least he felt that films were becoming more and more of that, that they were, they were allowing for that. And what he wanted was he wanted to make a movie that was that experience where you sat down and you watched it for the 150 or 120 minutes or whatever it was, the hour and 53 minute mm -hmm. runtime. And if you miss that first couple of minutes, you basically missed the movie and you would have to then try to piece it together after that. It's kind of true with this one because yeah, yeah, I can see that there's a lot going on here. It's another thing he does a lot and I actually really like that he does, but it can be difficult to get into or a, a tough barrier for entry is he plays with time and our perception of time a lot. Yes. And yes, I've noticed that. That to me is fascinating because time is such a huge, like weird thing that we as human beings have sort of constructed in a lot of ways. Because time, like time is, but is also not a constant. Like it continues on regardless of whether or not we observe it, whether or not we care, but we can perceive it differently. You and I can sit down I and think watch the same movie and it can feel like two very different experiences in time based right. on how we perceive that. So that to me is, is fascinating. I think in that he, uh, I think he does a better job at asking more interesting questions than he does attempting to answer them when he's actually attempting to actually answer the question he's asking. Um, cause he's more of, of that kind of, uh, while he is playing with time and perception, it's very, it's always at a very conceptual level. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like he's not necessarily seeking to answer just more that experience and exploring just an idea. Sure. And that's sort of that artistic license that he takes where uh -huh. he is, he is asking the question and then letting you as the audience sort of come to your own conclusions based on what he's giving you. That's why he has things like the ending of inception which if you haven't seen that movie, I'm not spoiling <laughs> yeah, yeah, anything, yeah. but 
the end of the movie is very ambiguous for a reason, and he's never given a, mm-hmm. a concrete answer one way or the other. He, I like that. I like movies that make me think and make me question things without having to spoon feed me all the answers. Because yeah, I, do I can feel... be I can be in the mood for I yeah. can be in the mood for an ambiguous ending from time to time. So yeah, things like that don't generally bother me. Um, so that yeah, that was always not really the worst of anything I found of his. Um, and in this one, what I like is he's not only playing with time, but also memory. Time in that the the structure of this movie is, especially at the time that it was released, late 90s, early 2000s, we'd had mm-hmm. some movies try this kind of thing. But it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of stuff playing with sort of the, the flow of time. And so what this did that I thought was fascinating, especially at, you know, 20, 21 years old when I saw it for the first time, is the movie plays in reverse, but tells the story in a linear fashion. So you're learning, you're learning the story as you go along, but each scene, or as Nolan called them, loops, plays in reverse. So we see what preceded right. it. And I thought, and I still think that's really well done and really kind of just intriguing. I don't know about well done. And it's, it's funny because the the movie is all subjectivity. I think that's a very kind of a subjective view at it, but only in the scope that no one else has tried to tell a story that way on film. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least none that I can think of. Like none have gotten anywhere close to such asynchronous storytelling. Um, the closest may be like, Fight Club, but even that has a pretty linear narrative that you can follow from beginning to end um, until it has its its fun little twist uh, that sort of resets what you thought about the whole movie prior. Um, but that's a different kind of story altogether. Yeah, yeah, because I mean that's that's twisting and then making you go back and think about what you saw before in a different light. But mm-hmm. this is basically you watch a scene and then the next scene is what happened leading up to that that scene you just saw, and and so there's that overlap. Right. And You're having to relearn everything as you keep going through the movie. Yeah. So what you do is you effectively end up with uh, uh, anterior grade amnesia like mm-hmm. Leonard has. And you're learning as he does. But it also plays with memory and how memory is unreliable, how no matter what Leonard tries to do, he's really kind of creating his own his own memories. Uh, and it, it's it's weird because... He has this routine and this structure that he tries to follow, but it's so easily manipulated, and he's so easily manipulated, both by outside forces. He manipulates himself. And himself, exactly, yeah. That that you just, you you end up like, it's a weird, it's, it's, it can be tough to follow your first time. I didn't have too much trouble with it, um, but I'm also the type of person that doesn't get up to uh, to answer the door when the pizza delivery person comes in the middle of a movie. Like, that's not my thing. So I'll pause it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I, uh, I didn't have too much trouble, but I definitely got more of it after I watched it a second and third time um, where mm-hmm. I could, yep. I could just pay more attention to what was going on and see some of the little tells that they were doing um, that I thought was kind of cool. Like there's, there's small things like the scene. So the, the character of Natalie played by Carrie Ann Moss, Mm-hmm. is totally manipulating him throughout the movie. We don't really ever find out exactly when they met. Mm. You don't think so? 
Well, not, I don't think through the entire movie. No. Um, certainly at first, um, especially once she learns about, uh, his interaction with Jimmy, um, and what that kind of means for her and the fallout of that, uh, of that whole ordeal, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of the, the, initial path that she sets him on that she realizes, or I think that she realizes after the fact that, Hey, maybe that wasn't the greatest of ideas. And maybe I, this guy has an actual real problem and I could do something to help. So I'm just kind of sort of do the bare minimum and feed him this little bit of information that he asked for that, you know, he sort of takes on his own. Cause the interesting, I think, I think, I think the thing you have to remember too, is that, we learn about Natalie more and more as we go further and further back in time. Mm -hmm. And we don't know exactly when Leonard met her. Cause I don't think him pulling up in the Jag at the back of the bar was the first time they had met. Um, Hmm. and the reason that I don't think that is she is confused to see him, but she's confused to see him in the Jaguar, but also Jimmy in the scene that, comes after that that precedes it in time knows who he is because he calls him the memory man at the abandoned house i missed that detail so yeah so jimmy knew who he was prior to this well i i, I in in that i may have a theory around that okay um, as i've been kind of sort of like trying to pick apart like bits and pieces of this movie and sort of figure out things because there's there's a few things about uh leonard's character that that kind of almost don't add up and that one could probably argue away to the fact of uh, like the level of his affliction. How real is it? Like clearly it, it at some level it's very real to him. Um, but even that it being him being an unreliable narrator, it's, it's kind of uh, really saying something to put into question and put into question of is he only saying that he has trouble with his memory because that's what he has taught himself to do? That's the story he's told himself over and over and over and over that he's believed. Mm-hmm. Uh, at at some level, he's it's kind of like a self fulfilling prophecy sort of thing. I can see that. I mean, it really comes down to his repetition and his uh, mm-hmm. structure for for creating his memories doesn't change right. the fact that he can, he. He can't build the new memories per se, but he sort of is over time. Yes. He still he still does remember some things. Mm-hmm. And and he remembers like, enough to like not trust certain things or sort of trust his gut. But the problem is like how much of that is is his personality po- poking through versus how much of it is like he's been manipulated in this direction one way or the other by himself mm-hmm. or by Teddy. Um because mm-hmm. Teddy's motivations are kind of left uh, a little bit murky as well. Oh yeah, and it's clear that Teddy has been manipulating him for you know longer than the the runtime of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like there's, they have a history together. Uh, it, going on, how well Leonard's crusade for for the for the supposed death of his wife. Yeah. Um, I, I guess we're getting into spoilers at some point here. What's <laughs> gonna. But, uh, yeah, Leonard's crusade for for the supposed death of his wife, which is still kind of up in the air. But I mean, in the end, it doesn't really that detail 
doesn't matter only so much as to give Leonard motivation to keep moving forward in the life that he's making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because it's still, go ahead, go ahead. Well, oh, I was just... well, I was, it's I, I was kind of going back on the idea that it's it's it still kind of come kind of comes in the question about the story that he recites to himself about Sammy Jenkins. Yeah, Sammy Jenkins. And yeah, and this story that he seems to remember from before his head injury of a man that had a very similar affliction. Yep. Um, but I think was found out to be a fraud. And he has somehow conflated that idea, that character in this in this story of his uh, to the eventual supposed death of his wife, which should have which would have happened after his uh, his injury, which is kind of difficult to why would he remember that specific detail? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so- I know Teddy does kind of kind of bring that into question a little, which yeah. is kind of also why I wonder that is his wife even really dead? I don't know, but that doesn't matter. It's not the point. Well, she, she definitely is. So the, so here's, here's how I kind of break it down is. So when Leonard was an insurance investigator in mm-hmm. his prior life, he, one of his big cases was Sammy Jankus. Mm-hmm. But the reality of that case, at least if you want to, if if we're going to believe Teddy, who, because Leonard is an unreliable narrator, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. Teddy may or may not be reliable. But let's go based on the assumption that Teddy is reliable and that Teddy actually has the facts. So in, in Teddy's version of the story, Sammy Jankus was a fraud. He was a con man that that was exposed by Leonard as being a fake. But yeah. he had conflated that into his own life because after Leonard's accident at the hands of the two junkies that attacked his house, um, mm-hmm. he had the amnesia. He had the anterior grade amnesia and couldn't make new memories. So the story of Sammy's wife testing him was Leonard's wife testing him. Right. And... So I do believe that his wife died. The problem was that his wife more likely died because of him and her testing him. The whole Sam, the whole thing of Sammy's wife, you know, getting the insulin overdose. That that was <laughs> that was his wife's thing. Um, as, as a like way a, to test him. Right. As as a person with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I mean that's a very real like yeah that's a that's a a death that you don't want uh it, that seems like a very very ham fisted and odd reason to make a test around that, knowing full well that yeah this is this is a thing that will absolutely kill you, and there's nothing that he could do to remember that's what's going on to you know have to call somebody for help like it i'm but there, there's a little bit of, I think, I think it's because of the bias of, you know, of being diabetic. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of, of that. Uh, it was a far reach for me to believe that behavior from her. Yeah. But w- the way that I try to look at it too, is, is when you listen to Leonard talk about Sammy and his wife and mm-hmm. why his wife did what she did, 
was because she couldn't understand that he couldn't make new memories because she all she saw was her husband. And right. then you've got the insurance adjuster telling her husband or the investigator that his problem isn't physical and that he should be able to make new memories. And now she's stuck with all the money. Like there's there's all of that part of it. So it is a stretch. And again, we don't know exactly all of the story because we're not given those details. So we can only right. go but by that, the memories of people. But it's like one of those things where she just she couldn't reconcile what was going on with her husband anymore. Now, me not being diabetic, I I can't look at it as uh, in the same light as you do. So that could be a difference. Um, well, I mean, and that's part of why I thought that there's there's bits and pieces of that that may have been part of the lie that he's told himself to believe over sure. time. Mm -hmm. That that he's how he says he's uh, you know habit routine makes his life possible. That's part of the habit and routine that he's chosen to believe yeah. to sort of keep himself moving forward. So. I mean, not that it matters in the end specifically of her character. Is his wife dead or alive? True. That's not really the that's not really the point mm -hmm. um, of the matter. Um, it's you know it's really what he has chosen. Uh, well, chose at some level chosen to believe, or at least the, the route that he has chosen to take in order to believe that outcome. And it, it, it's fascinating to think about the way that memory works, too, and the way that memory works in this movie, because there's little tricks that Nolan does that I thought were pretty, uh, pretty cool. Um, one of the things was the overlapping shots in different loops. He would use the same shot to start a scene and then end the next scene. But occasionally he would yeah. use a different take, but not every time. So like one or two of them have a different take. So it's just, just slightly different enough that different. Yeah. enough that you don't notice it unless you watch it over and over and you didn't pick up on those tiny little details. Um, oh yeah, I didn't I didn't pick up on that at all the first time through. Yeah, and it, it's just like I, that's I didn't a, even. Go ahead. I didn't even pick up on the 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 important scene where the Polaroid photo where it goes from the the black and white scene. Oh yeah. and as the 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 photo comes in or develops it fades into color like I, I didn't even pick that up the first time through yeah and that's where the the two timelines kind of intersect and again that was mm -hmm. another neat thing that he did with having having these loops but then they're intercut with the black and white stuff that is moving forward linearly in time and all mm -hmm. takes place before um so you've got these two timelines kind of coalescing but also there's differences like in the way that they shot stuff. So the, all the stuff shot in color is very standard filmmaking. And Wally Pfister was the uh, um, director of photography for this who went on to work with Nolan on a bunch of movies after. Um, and the way he shot it just looked really cool. But then when they would do these black and white things, they would shoot it more documentary style. And everything was done. Oh, yeah. A lot yeah, of I improv. Uh, most, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that I'd noticed that. But yeah, that, I see that. So it's got a totally different feel to it, and almost all of the dialogue was improv for those black and white scenes. So, all like the the scenes with Sammy and his wife had no dialogue in them in the script, and they had to kind of make up their own. Um, okay. So it gave just a very different feel, and then watching those two things merge together in that scene and having it done, you know, with the image of the Polaroid photo also developing at the same time was neat. Plus, little things yeah. like the opening scene is really cool with having 
the Polaroid photo that is, instead of developing, you're watching it fade away, much yes. like his memory does. But mm -hmm. everything in that scene plays backwards, right? Except the sound. Yeah, the credits come in and all that. Yeah. Yep. The, the visuals are backwards, but the sound is forward. And I thought that was really cool. And they just all they did to do that was they shot on film because that's what Nolan does. And he used a reverse magazine so he could just shoot everything backwards. Um, except yep. for the casing, the, the shell casing on the ground. They couldn't actually shoot that backwards, so it was just him blowing on it. Like, just <laughs> blowing and making it move. But I love that because... Again, it puts you in this weird headspace where you're watching things go in one direction, but you're hearing it in the other direction, except for, I think, the term when, when um, Teddy says no, that's played in reverse. I think. I'd have to watch it again. But, like, there's all those little things. Um, and we haven't even talked about kind of the, the casting and the acting in it yet, which, uh, you know, this, this is a movie, obviously, that's going to be, it's a smaller movie. It's a $9 million budget. And it's yeah. a very small cast. It's not a mm -hmm. big budget thing. It doesn't have a ton of extras or a bunch of like small characters. It's all, it's one of those little shot right around LA, keep everything nice and inex inexpensive. Um, and it's carried by Guy Pierce as Leonard, mm -hmm. um, Carrie Ann Moss as Natalie, and Joe Pantoliano as Teddy. And yep, old Joey Pants. Oh, they're great. All three of them are great. And, um, <laughs> I guess at one point Brad Pitt was almost Leonard, but then had to back out for scheduling reasons and couldn't do it. And I could that, see that, it that would, yeah. I mean, it'd be a different movie. Um, yeah, yeah, probably. And, and Nolan eventually. I think. Oh, go ahead. I think if 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 that was the case, and at the time, people would have probably drawn more comparison to it and Fight Club. Um, oh, simply for sure. because, yeah, Brad Pitt was, you know, in Fight Club and that he was kind of all everybody was talking about there. Mm -hmm. um, it being, you know, a year apart, that would definitely be the, the strongest link comparison thrown at it. Yeah. And and so they, they ended up going with Guy Pierce, who was not completely unknown at the time, but he's nowhere. He wasn't an A-lister. He wasn't even the Guy Pierce that he kind of became after this movie. Like he had done well, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And he had done L.A. Confidential, um, but he hadn't done... I didn't realize he was in that. He's the main like protagonist of L.A. Confidential. He's Lieutenant Exley. Um, but those were kind of like his major roles prior to this movie. Um, huh. And so him being a, a lesser-known actor in a lot of ways kind of helped because you're not, you don't have any preconceived notions of what, at the time at least... Um, of kind of what you're getting into that you would with their acting style and everything. Yeah. yeah. You might with a Brad Pitt or, um, you know, Nolan's worked with Christian Bale. He's worked with, uh, Robin Williams, Al Pacino, like all these big name actors. Um, mm -hmm. but I liked Guy Pierce a lot in this. I thought that the way he played Leonard was kind of spot on in that he's very confused throughout the movie but also very like focused on what he thinks he needs to do. Mm -hmm. So he's got yeah, this once, once he kind of reviews his tattoos, mm -hmm. uh, that, that he has sort of trained himself to recognize as fact. Uh, then he sort of like worked his way backwards, uh, reverse engineering, you know, f from those supposed facts. Yeah. yeah. And I love little touches. Like he writes in a very blocky fashion 
all the time, except for the, except one, for the time, one time. And he writes in kind of a, almost a cursive. And that yeah, with Natalie. Yeah. And like, that's almost enough for him to know he needs to scratch that out immediately. Like that's a, that's mm-hmm. such a cool little, little thing or like, you know, the, the way he would, every time he would look at his tattoos for the first time, it was, it was confusing for him for a second. And then like the recognition would hit that, Oh no, these are what I need. Yeah. Um, and just how he would, yeah, I thought, go ahead. I thought that writing was a pretty neat detail because mm-hmm. uh, up until that point, uh, they, he he kind of reiterates as part of sort of his mantra about being able to recognize his own handwriting and things like that. Uh, and, and I know they do it more than a couple times. And like seeing the one time where, why does his handwriting look different? This is weird. That's uh, part of that is also why there is at some level that I think that he may also be uh, actively lying to himself and conning mm-hmm. himself in sort of a weird way. So like the story, the story, that he recites about uh, Sandy Jankis um, may not necessarily be all true. Oh, sure. Uh, Absolutely. And just based on, on, on that criteria alone. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. And the idea of him being an unreliable narrator, there's no real way to know one way or the other. Like mm-hmm. there, there's parts of it that kind of have to be true for him to sort of believe that narrative to keep him, to keep his motivation going. Sure, absolutely. At least, at least true to him, not yeah. necessarily true to the world. And it sort of plays into like how we lie to ourselves a lot and how we can kind of convince ourselves of certain things as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that this is like at a at a much more magnified level because he he literally can't remember what just happened to him. And so he has to mm-hmm. take – he's trained himself to look at his own handwriting and the tattoos on his body and his photographs as gospel truth – so much so and there's such an easily manipulated thing I mean as simple as like he had uh, tattoo number five uh, fact drug whatever and then with one phone call he changed that to drug dealer and that completely changes how he's going to think about that later so that's fun stuff Um, also I got to say Guy Pearce was in some incredible shape for this movie because like he was He he was that uh, that Brad Pitt Ed Norton Fight Club kind of shape, right? Like real wiry. Yep. Um, <laughs> and it uh, it's like I only I only recognize him like off the top of my head in one other thing, and he was, I mean, he was in Marvel shape for that, but as uh, Mandarin, oh, yeah. Iron Man three, yep. Aldrich Killian. Um, mm-hmm. He yeah he, I just I really enjoyed and I love like the the photo of him where he's all happy. That one photo, it's like the only time you yeah. see him smile in the whole movie, and he's just got that elated look on his face. Also, really it's cool. Gangly. Yeah, really cool little detail on that. If you notice in that picture, he's pointing at his chest, right? Mm-hmm. And at one point, Natalie asked him about that area when she was looking at all his tattoos in the mirror, and he said he's saving that for um, when he catches John G. At the end of the movie, there's a flash to him lying in bed with his wife and she's kind of curled wife. up on him. And on that spot on his uh, chest is a tattoo that said, I've done it. Yeah. I remember and I was that. like, that's just, that's another one of those kind of cool little details that you might, you might notice and not think about, but then you see it a second time. You're like, Oh, Hey, check that out. That, that that's a little thing. Cause he was pointing at that spot in the picture. I just love little, little nods like that too, are, are always fun. Little Easter yeah, I mean, and that's also why, that also kind of goes into why I'm, I'm not totally sure that his wife is dead or that his wife is, has even 
left him that for whatever reason he's out on this uh this misremembered revenge narrative that he keeps forgetting about but at some level he still manages to get home to her um or whether that's a complete fabrication of his mind as it is anyway and he's just dreaming that's difficult to tell yeah it is hard to say i i would probably guess that in my interpretation that's a fabrication in his head and he's so at this point now he's so far gone i mean he's not even listening to teddy who's been his friend for a year um or more mm-hmm. uh and obviously he, he quote know. friend right <laughs> uh and so teddy is played by joe Pagliano. love joey pants uh i have i have enjoyed seeing him in movies since i was a kid um really cool casting idea for this character because he's sort of sort of known as playing kind of bad guys mm-hmm. in a lot of things but he isn't always and he definitely doesn't come across that way in this but he's like he's almost too affable right he's almost too friendly to leonard through so much of the movie and then you find out at the end that like he's kind of i mean he's using leonard to kind of get his own stuff done but he also does feel bad for him. he knows and i think he knows what let who well not what or he knows in namesake, at least, who Leonard is after, which he knows is kind of a, you know, a bad state of affairs for himself as well. So having to sort of hide that part of I, of his identity from Leonard time and time again, mm-hmm. uh, like when Leonard Leonard gets close and he's like, no, 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 you you have to look at this over here, and tries to get yeah. him to forget about it. Yep, I, I but I like how like you can tell again if you're assuming that the end of the movie that Teddy is being truthful with him. You can, you, you get the sense that like he genuinely cared enough to sort of take this on and give him a copy of the police report and all this kind of stuff. Give him purpose. And yeah, give him purpose, but then sort of also saw some selfish things he could do with that. Like, ah, this guy, I could point this guy in the right direction and maybe get some stuff done on my own. Um, oh, yeah. And Natalie did the same thing. Yeah. Yep, and so, but well, in kind of in kind of reverse order. Yeah, and I think the difference between the two is like, I feel like Teddy started off very altruistic, and then maybe had a, a realization like, oh no, I can make this work for me. But he still also wanted to, he wanted to get Leonard to a point of feeling that completion, efficiency. Well, yeah. feeling the completion oh, well, okay. of his mission. Yeah. And then when it happened... So that he could be absolved of everything. Yeah. And then it happened, and it didn't change anything for him, and so he sort of fell into the rut of like, well, let's keep trying that. Whereas Natalie, I get the feeling like she was she was always in it for herself once she... Especially once she saw him pull up in the Jag. Mm-hmm. She, she knew exactly... She, she pretty much knew that something had happened to Jimmy and that she was going to just use him for whatever. And, and that, that scene where they're in her house, there's like three, I think it's three scenes in a row. And at one point she just tells him straight out, I'm going to use you for my own mm-hmm. purposes. I'm going to tell you about yep. it because there's nothing you can do about it. Like that's such a yep. just 
vindictive thing and she's relishing that and I kind of enjoy it. Like her performance yeah. is great. Carrie Ann Moss is great. Well, and then she ends up kind of eating those words later once she realizes that, at least at some level to her, that, that he is for real and has a legitimate problem mm-hmm. uh, that she's kind of, you know, wound herself into. And, and it, Natalie is kind of a, a another interesting uh, loose end. They don't, they don't really tie up very well. Uh, they don't tie up at all because, because she, so Teddy, Teddy is the cop who gets, who is investigating her boyfriend, Jimmy, who's Mm -hmm. dealing drugs out of the bar. Well, yeah, he is now. Yeah. And so Jimmy's dealing drugs out of the bar. Teddy's investigating that. She basically figures out who Teddy is. And that's where, you know, there's the scene where he comes out of the car, he comes out into the car and Teddy's sitting in there. And he's like, she doesn't know who I am. But then once she figures it out, she basically sets Leonard on that. So so in a lot of ways, she gets Teddy killed. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think she even really intends to um, at that point. Because I don't think, I don't remember if she realizes that Teddy is the cop uh, that um, that Leonard knows. Like, I don't. I don't recall if Teddy and her meet at all. They don't. Um, they don't meet, but she yeah. knows the name Teddy because Teddy was who Jimmy was going to meet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, so she sort of, when she figures out this information and gives it to, to Leonard and be like, you know, here's something I found that may be useful. Have at it. And that's pretty much the last you see. Well, I mean, in the, in the in the timeline, that's order. the last thing we see yeah. of her. In the order of the narrative, that's the last you see of her. Like, you know, there's there's a loose end right there. So it, it's if we're to assume that this isn't the first time that Leonard has gone through this loop, it won't be the last time. And now she is involved in this loop, and you know there she is at some relative danger at at in the future of of her character, um, kind of like you know. Jimmy before her and whomever who he's dealt with before, before Jimmy and Teddy and Dodd, who just kind of disappears as another loose end. That this well, Dodd, they make, they make get out of town. They have him leave town. So I, I like not I, completely I think I missed tied that because he just, yeah, well, cause they, they get him into the car and then you don't really hear a lot about, you don't really hear anything about Dodd after that. Because, well, no, because uh, they, what they had said was, let's just make him get out of town, like tell him to leave town or we'll kill him. And so they walk him out to the car and that's why Leonard rides with him and then gets out and you hear the car, you hear the, the SUV take off and he gets back into the car with Teddy. They yeah. basically take him to the edge of town and say, and leave. That was the, you know, in the old West, taking literally taking him to the edge of town on his horse and making him leave mm-hmm. the town. So yeah, fair enough. You know, and then Dodd's gone. I mean, but you're it, right. Like, it's not it, a fully... It would be... Yeah, it, w- it would be kind of interesting to see if, uh, like, t- Dodd comes back with help, for example. Sure. Because, I mean, <laughs> we don't even know who he was. Was he another drug right. dealer? Did he work for the same people Jimmy worked for? Like, we don't know. Well, I, that's... Well, no, we're, we're told that, what, Dodd and Jimmy were partners? We're not really uh, told much about Dodd. We're we're told that uh, that I think I think it was Dodd and Jimmy were partners. Dodd Dodd and Jimmy have some kind of relationship, business relationship around that two hundred thousand dollars. 
that was in the Jag. And it's something about that money that Natalie ends up knowing about because Dodd would come after her for it. Um, when it, because, uh, or if it becomes missing because she's the only link that he has to Jimmy, but that could be, uh, but you know, where, where, who that money really belongs to. Yeah. We don't really know either. Like that, that might not be Dodd and Jimmy's money as it is. That might be the money for their big boss. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Cause that was, I mean, <laughs> Jimmy was supposed to be buying a bunch of, uh, meth with it. That's what he thought okay, he was yeah. doing. Yeah, drugs, yeah. Um, was he thought he was buying drugs from Teddy. So Teddy was okay. Teddy had set up the meeting, uh, but then obviously Leonard went there. Yeah, and, um, and it's and it's not very clear whether Dodd is a partner in this in this whole ordeal or whether right. Dodd is the person fronting the money. Yeah. Uh, I, it's that or a mixture of both. I would be very interested to hear or see like this same story but told from some different perspectives not necessarily in a movie i don't know if i I necessarily need like a sequel movie or anything like that but even just like a like a novel or novelization or short stories because this this was based off of a short story by christopher nolan's Mm -hmm. brother jonathan um but i'd be curious to kind of hear the story from you know teddy's perspective from uh dodd's perspective even like his parts in it just just to kind of fill in those blanks because teddy like the Teddy character will just appear out of nowhere, almost like he's constantly surveilling Leonard and just mm-hmm. knows where he is at all times. And I, I always thought that was kind of neat. Like apparently it was Joe Pantoliano's idea to have him sitting in the car in that scene. So when Leonard gets into it and he's just like, you know, a car this nice, you should really lock the doors. Um, mm-hmm. Was Because uh, yeah, why would he remember to do that? Right. And so if you notice, though, <laughs> throughout the movie – up until that point, he'd always locked the doors and he would make it a point to, to hit the beeper. And then oh, okay. after yeah. that point in the movie, which, and after that point would be before it in time, he never locked the doors because he, mm-hmm. he only had the car yeah. for a short period of time. So it's like, it was, yeah. It's a, and that's where it goes to like, there's some things that he's, he seems to retain in memory mm-hmm. from time to time, or at least when the plot is convenient to sort of, be like, is he really, how, I mean, yes, unreliable narrator again, how unreliable, well, not how unreliable is he, but how, how unreliable is he to himself? And well, it's like if he can, if he starts to, uh, you know, go through these routine repetitive behaviors, uh, like something as simple as locking a door simply because someone had said that and somehow it, it may not be the specific conversation that he remembered, but perhaps the the idea of that feeling that maybe he should be more secure and that's locking the door will do that Mm -hmm. for that security sure absolutely i mean again it's that thing where like memory is such a weird thing and we don't fully really know exactly or at least most of us don't uh how memory works um i am not somebody who studied the brain to to know um (laughs) but uh, it, it's like the the movie wanted to show that there are so many different ways that we can retain information too, um, and one of those yep. might have been like that's a that's kind of one of those um, automatic responses. He has that fight or flight moment where he gets down in the car, and then you hear you hear the voice, and he looks over and he lunges at him, you know. So immediately he goes into fight mode, but that may have been enough to trigger like a baser part of his memory to be like I should lock the doors when I get out of the car. And, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So, like, it's just 
I love little things and these little little details that you can pick up on. Because again, if you you watch the movie again, you'll see that he the first half of the movie he's always locking those doors and you hear that beep noise so many times. Um plus I love like yeah. we find out how the window got blown out. So you're waiting you're you you from the moment he goes to roll that up and it's just like pieces of glass falling out of it, like now you're waiting to find out how did that happen. I think it was the third time through that I realized that I don't I don't I didn't notice the window not being there in the beginning the first two times because uh, I remember it like being shot out mm-hmm. and I think it was a uh, it was more than when I started to pay attention to like where the story order was yeah on that third time through uh, so I was like oh okay that's that's right because there's no window the window was shot out well the window will be shot out <laughs> later. <laughs> The window will be shot out because it was shut out before. Uh, you uh-huh. just yep. confuse yourself with that. Um, yep. But kind of getting back to Joey Pants, like he was almost a perfect casting for that character because he does have ulterior motives and he can be somewhat sinister, but he's just so likable mm-hmm. and so aff- and that mustache too that he was sporting was <laughs> something else. He kind of he kind of he kind of reminds me of. Uh, like a like a, a cousin to Joe Pesci. He's got a little bit of that to him. Yeah. I mean, I remember yeah. him as far back as seeing him in Running Scared when he played a character named Snake. Um and he was just like smarmy nope. in that and uh I also loved him in The Fugitive and its sequel US Marshals as Cosmo. Um, God, I don't I don't remember him in either of those and I haven't seen those since I was little. So he's sort of like Tommy Lee Jones second in command and he's just very okay. sarcastic in both of them um yeah. in in a way that only Padliano can be. Uh but yeah. then you yeah. know you think of him like as Cypher um mm-hmm. his yep. role in uh, the Sopranos like he's he's been around he's done a lot of good stuff. This is one of those that I just always remember him for and I think it's because his look in it is so like late 90s with he's got the big glasses, the the thinning hair, and the mustache, but he's just like he's introduced by opening the door and just late saying 90s, Lenny, you know, late nineties movie cop. Yeah, exactly that. Um, <laughs> and he's just like he just shows up out of nowhere in like so many different scenes, um, and I just I just love that. So it was a great casting choice, I think, because you also aren't you aren't looking at him. And thinking, oh, this guy's this guy's manipulative, and he's doing some things that are pretty shady, or he's a corrupt cop, it, which is basically what he is. He's a bad cop at the end of the day. Oh yeah, I mean, and looking back on it, he he shows up uh, more often because Leonard calls him. Like he gets like kind of going through the, the order of the narrative. Like he gets into whatever jam, and Leonard calls him up and is like, "Oh hey, you're somebody I think I can trust. According to my pictures, I need your help with this thing." Because you know, I think I think his first uh, encounter is with well is with Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. So he in, in, yeah in the order he leading up to his meeting with Jimmy, he's on the phone with yeah. um with Teddy. All all those black and white scenes. That's Teddy on the other end of the phone. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 So because yeah, he he gets there he gets there in the truck before Teddy. He doesn't call him after. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. And then, but, but what I like again is throughout the movie, Teddy's been his friend and helping him. And then at the end of the movie, he 
doesn't necessarily flip, but he's sort of he's he's much more stern with him at that point and just kind of like you're an idiot and this we've tried this before and it hasn't worked. What have you done now? type of thing. Um and it just sets up and makes everything else so so much different throughout the rest of it cuz he's like I got to go back into being friendly again cuz we're we're he's still here and he won't leave and like trying to get him to leave town and he's not doing that and just like all this different stuff. I just I really liked that. So Pagliano, uh when when you have to again when the movie has to hinge on like two or three different performances and that's going to carry it cuz you don't have there's no action set pieces. I mean, the closest we get is the chase between him and Dodd. Yeah. And oh, I'm chasing this guy. Oh no, he's chasing me. <laughs> Such a great one. Um, like there's that moment and the moment where he's sitting in the bathroom and he's holding the bottle of, of liquor and he's like, "Huh, yep. it's weird. I don't feel drunk." drunk. Um, <laughs> but but to have you know just a couple of actors that have to carry a movie like this and. Guy Pierce nails it. Pataliano, I think, is fantastic throughout the whole thing. And Carrie Ann Moss, this was only the second movie I ever saw her in after seeing The Matrix. Um, and she's really good, and she's very different from Trinity. Trinity was a mm-hmm. a character that, especially in that first Matrix, is just, like, she's capable of Well, doing... she was there for her purpose as well. Yeah, like she she had an idea of at least well she had an idea of what she thought that her world there meant to her and mm-hmm. and what her role in it was. Yeah, I mean she's literally just a supporting character and and memento who is kind of fed up and a little bit confused because who is this guy and what happened to Jimmy and all this. Uh, and then just kind of gets mad at the whole situation anyway, because Mm -hmm. what are you going to do? True. Um, but then once she kind of has the full realization of what exactly goes on with Leonard, she uses that so well. Mm -hmm. I mean, the simple thing of like the way that she manipulates him in the house in, in Mm -hmm. multiple scenes where she comes in and here she, she just yeah she's just spouting off stuff randomly while she's grabbing every pen in sight and putting it in her bag so that mm-hmm. Leonard can't follow what's going on and then leaves and just sits in the car and waits for him to basically yep. she basically mm-hmm. just waits and then gets out of the car and comes back in with a totally different story like I love all that and and it's fun to watch it the way that the movie is structured because you you don't know what's coming when you see it played out yeah. in that direction yeah, it, yeah, it presents that she got beat up by some other dude. When it's mm-hmm. like, no, that's that's not the order that it happened. Also, really and then, cool. And then I was just gonna say. And then that, later, when yeah, in, in that ahead, scene, real quick, where she's uh, she's obviously beaten up and she's talking, and there's that quick moment where Leonard kind of flexes his hand, and then that's when like your brain is like, oh yeah, so he probably hit her. Not maybe not on the first watch, but if you watch it again, you you see that moment. Mm-hmm where he's flexing his hand like he just hit somebody and then you find out, no, it was him from the scene prior. Later, yeah. Prior slash later. later prior. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that in this movie. Um, yep, yep. But those those three are just so good. And then Mark Boone Jr. plays uh, Bert and he's one of those character actors that actually shows up in a lot of uh, Nolan films as well. He's uh, the hotel manager 
and he's just yeah yeah yeah. I he just a hotel man. I don't remember what I've seen him in though, but I think I, it's like he's one of those characters, character actors. It's like I've, I've seen him in stuff, but I can't pick out anything specific. I mean, he has like a, a small role in Batman Begins. He has a small role in Seven. Um, he's actually in an episode, I think, or two of The Mandalorian. Like he shows up in a lot of stuff, but he always, he almost always has the long hair and the big beard too of some type. I th- I think it might be seven is what I remember him from because seven and memento are so similar in type mm-hmm. and sort of that, that it, the memento being kind of a, a twist on a, on a detective noir story. Yeah. And seven is very much a detective noir story. Yep. They're, they're kind of cut from that same DNA. Um, I think that's probably what I remember him the most from. Uh, Could be without being specific being specific i always remember him in batman begins because he's shaken down the falafel cart guy uh for all his money and they as he's buying the <laughs> yeah, falafel, okay, yeah and uh he just says he says <laughs> to the guy with a mouthful of it oh your kids don't like falafel like i just always remember him from that but he's he is one of those character actors that i see him and stuff and i'm just like all right i like him i don't care if he's playing a uh, a terrible person or a good person doesn't matter he's just he's got like this it's charisma about him um, mm-hmm. so he was fun. And then did you notice Thomas Lennon, AKA Lieutenant Dangle um, from Reno 911? I didn't, I've never seen Reno 911. Oh, okay. So the doctor in the scenes with Sammy Jankis, he's only got like a couple of shots and it's just him reacting and saying, it's just a test, Sammy. But that actor, okay. um, Thomas Lennon is hilarious he's a very funny actor um most known for reno 911 but he's done a ton of other stuff i had completely forgotten he was in this wait a minute i think i think i know who you're talking about now um yeah i mean he's been in uh well he's done a couple other or at least one other uh oh geez yeah this guy um reno 911 wouldn't be anything i would have remembered him from i've seen him in other stuff and i'm trying to remember what now and looking at his list, let's see. Cause he uh oh he was Mixel uh Mixelplick and Supergirl, yeah. Yep. Yep, he did that. Uh before they did Reno nine one one, the kind of same group of people did a show called Viva Variety. He was in that. I uh, loved him in that show as well. Mm. Um Santa Clarita Diet. Yep. I remember him from that. Oh, oh, that's right. Now I know what I remember him from. He was Leo Getz in the series. In the, in the, oh, yeah, uh, the Lethal Weapon series. series. Yep. Yeah, that's what I remember him from. So like, he's he's great, and I had completely forgotten mm-hmm. that he was he was in this. And, you know, he's in a blink and you miss it moment, but I was just like, oh, yep, it's Thomas Lennon. And, oh, I mean, the same, the same blink and you miss it moment with uh, with Sammy as... Uh, oh, uh, Stephen Tobolowsky. Steve, yeah, yeah. Ned, needle needle nose Ned Stephen Tobolowski. So one of my notes when I was watching the movie is uh, just simply Tobolowski is a treasure. Like that guy mm-hmm. is amazing. Whether whether you only know him as Ned Ryerson from uh, Groundhog Day, or yep, he and one of the amazing things with him, he's such again that like Mark Boone Jr. or like Joey Padal- Joey Pants, you know Padaliano, he's such this affable, likable person. And so usually when you see him, you just think of him as being, especially because so many of us remember him as Ned Ryerson, you just think of him as this like friendly dude. But if you ever saw him in, now Heroes wasn't a great series, but he had a small role in that and he was a bad dude in that. He was. I I don't um, remember him in Heroes. And I remember, I've seen that whole series. He was uh, uh, Kristen, 
um, oh, what's her name? Uh, he was the father figure for uh, the one character, and he had the golden touch. He could turn things to gold by touching them. Oh, okay. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the girl that was the waitress? Yeah. No. No, no, no. Um, yeah? The, the redhead. No, the blonde. Uh, I don't know why I can't think of her name now. Um, she's married to Dad. No. She's married Allie, to uh, Dad. Allie. Allie Larder? No, not Allie Larder. Um, but I know, I know who you're thinking of. Um, hang on, let me find it here. Heroes. Uh, Bob Bishop was this character's name. And mm. he was the father of... This bothers me until I figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> says, Allie Larder was Nikki Sanders. Um, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, where'd she go? Where'd she go? Not Bria Grant. Have, Kristen Bell. Have... Kristen Bell's character of L. Bishop. Oh, God, I forgot she was in that. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, What did she do? She... Was it weather? No. Was it? No. It's like it's like lightning, lightning projection. Yeah. 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 It's been so long since I've seen the I know. show. I forgot she but was it, in that. But it was her. <laughs> her dad was played by Stephen Tobolowsky, and okay, okay, he was he like very sinister in that show, and it was a little jarring the first time I saw it because I'm like, all I can think of is Ned Ryerson, and I'm seeing it, <laughs> but then you realize like he just he can do that, and then in this in this movie. His performance is great because as Sammy, he's kind of blissfully unaware of everything that's going on around him. It's great those moments where he's just sitting there watching, you know, the TV. And I love how uh, Leonard describes it where he says, um, you know, he he would watch TV, but he couldn't pay attention to anything that was very long. So he just liked commercials because they were short. Um, yeah. Okay. And But you're watching him and then like when he's getting tested – and they're doing over and over the test of him picking up the different objects and him constantly picking up the electrified object, you see him becoming angry. And that's when I kind of have that realization like, oh yeah, I, I remember now. He can he can play angry really well. Um, and, <laughs> and, and again, that was all stuff that he had to kind of improv. So like the, you know, test this, you quack, and flipping the doctor off, that was like Tobolowski coming up with that. Um, and there were subtle things in his performance. And again, like you said, it's not a, he's not, doesn't have a ton of screen time, but the scene where his wife is testing him with the, mm -hmm. uh, with the injections, his reaction each time she says it's time for my shot is just slightly different enough that you're not sure if he's really figuring out what's going on or not. And so I just, I really liked like, like he's getting a deja vu kind of version or, a little uh, bit. Yeah. Or, uh, that version, but uh, yeah, like that feeling of deja vu, which I think to me, I mean, that idea sort of makes sense that at some level, um, at least on a storytelling level, I don't know about the reality of of uh, this particular brand of amnesia, that one could, you know, maybe feel that there's some level of this feels familiar. I know this feels familiar, but I don't recognize it you know, enough to realize this is what's happening. Well, it's it's funny you say that because Tobolowski believes that part of what got him the role was the fact that he dealt with that type of amnesia. He had a surgery done, and after the surgery, he had some anterior grade amnesia for a while. And he would wake up 
in random, like in a room in his house and have no idea how he got there type of stuff. So he was able to kind of call on that experience when playing this character, not nearly to the level that either character in the movie had, but he, he had some experience with that. And I mean, that's one of the things like we've all probably experienced something similar to that. It's the, why did I walk into this room moment where, Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's, and it really does come down to, it's just that with Leonard, he could, he could retain what was going on as long as he was able to focus on it. But as soon as something broke his concentration, it was gone. Whether it was a loud noise or just too much time passed to where he couldn't retain that anymore. Um, so oh, very much, very much the scene where, uh, where Dodd's chasing him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly that. Because I mean, you, you just get dropped into the scene and he's running and I'm like, what's happening? Where am I? What's going on? <laughs> oh, I'm chasing somebody. <laughs> no, he's chasing and then he me. Realizes, no. Yeah. He's chasing me. Yeah. That, uh, I just, uh, I really like that. So I love the performances in this and I like the manipulation, not only of memory, but of time. I think, by the way, uh, if you, you can find it, um, the special edition DVD of this movie actually allows you to watch the movie in real time. In, I've uh, heard that. Yeah. You have to, there was like some memory games they put on the DVD and if you pass them and unlocked it, you could watch the movie in a, in a linear fashion, um, which is, which is interesting to do. Um, but like, I was always fascinated by the fact that you could tell the story in reverse, but tell a cohesive front to back story. Um, and I just love the idea of playing with memory. This, this movie for me is one that if you like I I feel if you are into storytelling, this is worth seeing because it shows you the different ways that a story can be told. And it doesn't just have to be A to B to C. In this case, yeah. you had I, I mean, you had A to B going in black and white, and you had D to C going in color, and they met in the middle, but it was the end of mm-hmm. the movie. So yeah, I mean, I think because I enjoy um, sort of a good. Not even old fashioned. I, I enjoy I enjoy a good uh you know presentation of a story. Um mm-hmm. it's some you know, pretty much most manners of uh, of storytelling. So uh, as trying to sort of understand the way that the story is being told, uh, I do like it for being uh so far off the beaten path different enough that it it does make the ideas of how it arranges its story, the kind of the most interesting parts about the movie, mm-hmm. um, which, which is definitely worth a watch on just that alone. Yes. Um, you know, before any of the, the actor performances and the, the content of the story in and of itself, just, just the way that it posits uh, sort of the ideas of, of how a story can be told, I think are the most interesting things about it. And I mean, I could definitely see why, after watching it three times now, why it would certainly be a uh, a film s- school studies subject on uh, storytelling and, and what ways you can do like asynchronous storytelling in film and uh, you know, a way one could organize it to make it work. It's I, I do find it interesting in that, um, at least, and not that I've been around the block so much, that it, I have not seen anything... Uh, as challenging from a storytelling perspective as Memento. Um, it, even the other Nolan works I've seen, 
-hmm. from storytelling, they're not as challenging. Um, he has softened up on that a little bit. Um, he, he, he gets more of his challenge challenges now more specifically from, uh, independent character interactions, not mm -hmm. so much from the, the world that they're in. I haven't seen Tenet, so I don't know that, about that, but with, except for the, with the exception of most of Inception, mm -hmm. because it sort of does keep asking the audience if, uh, is anything in this movie, in this world, in anything is, it is any of this real. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just the whole, what is reality? Well, don't know, but could be this. Yep. <laughs> But and and that is why I think I like Nolan a lot is that he does take some chances and he's he has built himself a career where he can do a movie like Memento at nine million dollars and he can basically do another sort of version of that same idea of like I'm just gonna do something real weird and really out there, but I'm gonna get a whole truckload of money to make it now. <laughs> because he's shown that he can be bankable. Um, yeah, Batman and, did that. Yeah, and in the fact that he can he can take these risks and try these different things, whether it's uh, you know Interstellar or Inception or Tenet um, or you know Dunkirk is honestly a very different style of movie. And if you haven't seen that, it's a really good war movie um, without it being a, a yeah, war I, movie. It's, I didn't realize. Or remember until recently that that was Nolan as well. Um, I've heard a lot about uh, the sound design of that movie is, is really the biggest experience behind it. Not so much uh, the overall storytelling, but in the way that the sound design works with the storytelling. Yeah, that movie is is an experience. Um, I covered it mm -hmm. uh, on this show a while back with Nisbet, actually, who's in the chat right now. And um, I had not seen it before. And it is that is almost more of an experience than any of his other movies in so much as it's not really a, a – there's a story being told, but it has almost nothing to do with the story and more to do with putting you in that situation. But I just like right. – I like a director that will do stuff like that. That's why I like um, – you know, movies that like say Ridley Scott has done where he's trying different things and he's playing around with, with stuff. Now you, his movies can feel hit or miss to people, but I genuine, generally like them. I generally like Nolan movies, whether it is him kind of easing off some of the weirdness when he does, you know, a Batman begins or he does, um, really his whole Batman trilogy isn't nearly as weird or is out there as some of his other stuff, but he's even still there trying to manipulate and play with stuff um, and play oh, yeah. with perceptions. I, I think, I think it's more, not so much, um, at least the way that he tells the stories and it being weird is that I, sometimes I think he gets a little lost in the minutia of the storytelling, which makes consuming it a little tedious. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it took this movie for me to really realize that's kind of what my problem with with Nolan movies was because I remember I think Inception was the first of his I've watched. Okay, um, and I, I I remember just thinking like, oh my god, so much to pay attention to in this movie because <laughs> it's not that there's a lot going on; it's that there's always just a lot to remember because yes. you forget about stuff. And the movie uh, really does a lot of work to get you to forget about things so it can bring it up later and be like, Oh yeah, you forgot about this. We're going to bring this up again. 
Yep. Um, which actually kind of works well for that movie, considering its subject matter. Um, but you don't get that with uh, Interstellar, uh, as it's a completely just it's it's very much a more visual storytelling piece mm-hmm. uh, that is uh, not tedious to intake in the way that the story is being told just that what you're seeing is huge oh yeah uh, yeah and sort of to get that uh feeling of just being so small because space is so big and uh and a different kind of tedious in that way yeah, I mean, Nolan is not, Nolan's movies are not for everyone. And if you don't like his movies, I completely understand it. I personally love his Batman trilogy. I also look at them very differently from other superhero based stuff because he made, you know, he, he made it a point to take a character like Batman and take the rogues gallery that he had available to him and and try to make it grounded in closer to what we would perceive as being a reality and what could actually oh, yeah. happen, um, which yeah, is fine. I have no bit. problem with that at all. Um, but I also don't like at the same time, I don't think that's the only way you can adapt stuff, but I do appreciate when those adaptations happen. Um, because I think, it, I think it works best for Batman because there is a level that he can get a little crazy. Oh um, yeah. Given, given the, the right storytellers, <laughs> that, are, that are that are writing for Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, once, uh, for instance, once you start getting into like the Schumacher era of Batman, you're we're right, we're right back in the 1960s where it's all silly and fun and games again. Yeah, um, which I don't think that you know clearly that was not the Batman that that uh, people were wanting, especially coming off the tales of Frank Miller's books, mm-hmm. which I think is one reason why Nolan's Batman did so well is because it was more direct from that adaptation of Frank Miller's. Uh, interpretation of Batman that was so much more grounded, so much more realistic. Sure. Um, and I think, yeah, Nolan did a good job like telling stories uh, with that for the most part, at least. Yeah. I, I have, I have issue with which one's the third one rises. Dark Knight rises. That's I mean, the there, yeah, that's the third one. Uh, I mean, yeah. there's, there's issues with all three of them. Um, however, I, I will say that, uh, I, while I think the Dark Knight is the best of the three, um, I think that's yes. you know you're talking about you're talking about three very good movies mm-hmm. on the whole. Like there isn't a bad one in the mix. It's not like right. So you know it's at that point you're splitting hairs, really. Um, yeah, but it, it, it comes down to like uh, character design. Uh, more specifically for me behind uh, Bane and Talia um, were two characters that I don't think were serviced as well as they should have been because uh, they felt a little too different from from their 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 comic book origins. Um, they, they felt sort of odd in the story that they were trying to tell between those two. I think. Rises. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's there's a lot to go into on that. Uh, I loved Bane personally, but I also knew that he was very different from the comics in a, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, but also very similar in a lot of ways. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's an adaptation, um, which I'm fine yeah. with. But, but I mean, Nolan, Nolan is, he can be a very polarizing director. People love his movies. They hate his movies. Some people just think that he's just up his own butt and, and thinks way too highly of himself. Um, and other people look at him as the greatest living <laughs> yeah. director out there. I think... I think that he is very good 
and I enjoy his movies, but I can understand when people watch something of his and are like, I don't get it. You know, with somebody that sits down and watches Inter- Interstellar and is just left scratching their head afterwards. All right, I understand. His It's dense and it's not easy to get into. And I this mean, it's, is it's a simple story of love conquers all. Sure. Is really what it comes down to. <laughs> sure. But but it, his his technique is so dense that it can be mm-hmm. difficult to, to chip away at. And this is a prime example of it. This movie is not, I wouldn't call it easily accessible, but at the same time, I would call it something that, that I think people should see. And I think it's kind of underrepresented in that way. I mean, outside of Batman, and that's only, I think, because it was just a name that Warner Brothers decided to attach Batman to with Nolan. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of his movies are that accessible. Um, perhaps Interstellar might be the most accessible, and that's that's still a far reach away from most people's ability to sort of intake film at any passive level. It's it's His films are definitely films that you have to be in a mood for and sort of be have a little mental preparedness for that this is going to be something that you need to pay attention to. Like he, he really does demand your attention. And if you don't give it to him, then you're not going to, you're not going to enjoy what he is trying to show. Oh, you. Certainly. You know, he, he seems to me, uh, I would almost describe Nolan as a less sardonic or less sarcastic Terry Gilliam. Because Terry Gilliam is another director like that where if you're not paying attention to what he's doing, you're not going to like what he makes. Whether it's Brazil or The yep. Fisher King or, you know, whatever Art it is. House Zack Snyder. A little bit of that, I think. Or <laughs> or at least Zack Snyder would aspire to be that, right? That's that's yes. what he's going yes. for. Um, yes, that's, that's what Zack Snyder's trying to do, but <laughs> Nolan is doing it better. <laughs> at least at least in the way of of being a film auteur sure sure although i don't hate Zack um, Zach, stuff either i i don't i don't either um he 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 gets kind of lumped in with uh that that area of like michael bay action oriented but still trying to make it look like it's high cinema um which i think sort of loses a little bit of the point of the way he wants to frame action yeah if, I, mean, I think the he I, 300 is the only movie of his i think kind of balances that well simply because of the way it's adapted from the original source material it it's sure. perfect for the type of action that it's trying to show you it's very manly masculine this this is what it was intended to be mm-hmm. um and he's he he paints that picture pretty well in that movie sure. um trying to use that same art aesthetic on um what's the movie um uh the next one he did with what's her face oh are you talking about uh uh i know uh, not sugar baby but something like that yeah yeah, um, yeah. i can't think of the title where where he's going through uh her head as she's about to die like there's something about the art direction of that movie and the way that he's filmed that movie and in accordance to how what he was doing with 300 that kind of sort of loses a weird visual quality that kind of makes it feel like a comic book movie that it's not mm-hmm. sucker punch by the way is the movie sucker punch there you go that's it yes 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 uh and it's i think it's it's a hard difference to explain um but it, it's yes i think that's 
Sucker Punch at some level is Zack Snyder's most trying to be that visual, this is art in the way that he tells stories and the way that Nolan uh, has his overall storytelling of mm-hmm. this is art. Sure. Um, but it doesn't work as well for Snyder, at least there. Yeah. Yeah, but I think overall, uh, it sounds like, because it, it sounded like when you first watched Memento, you weren't super keen on it. Um, and that was about a week or so ago, and you started posting yeah. about it in Discord, and that's where I was like, stop, stop talking, stop, ta- save it for the next <laughs> week. <laughs> um, I mean, most most of it was a little bit of bias from realizing that it was a Nolan film. I, did, I mean, like I said, this has been the most... Uh, like in the dark, I've gone in on a film on anything in a long time. I did not know it was Nolan. I was not prepared for a Nolan film. <laughs> and I was like, oh man. <laughs> well, and not only a Nolan film, but I mean, for me, uh, now I still, I also have not seen Tenet and I do need to watch that. But for me, this is like the most Nolan of Nolan films, right? Because I could see that, yeah. It, it, it's honestly my favorite Nolan film that I've seen to date. Um, and that's including the Batman trilogy, but, yeah. I mean, but it's also argues that inception is a watered down version of some of the ideas from memento. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and but even, it's definitely and that's some thick water. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's kind of that most Nolan of Nolan films, but, but it's one of those things. It, it, it feels like from our conversation tonight, like your, your stance on it changed a little bit as you watched it again. I appreciate the movie and the way that it's trying to tell a story uh, and sort of sort of the, the challenges that uh, it presents. And, and again, that's going into uh, having sort of put myself in a mindset to to consume sure. that sort of film. Okay. Um, like if, if this is just a, hey, let's go watch a movie tonight, go out to the theater and be like, hey, this looks like something that could be cool. I would have not been happy at coming out of that theater and <laughs> like, what in the world did I just watch? And instead of being like, oh, it's a Nolan film. Okay. That means it's going to, I need to have a certain level of preconception about the way that he makes movies to really put myself in a headspace to figure out what I can enjoy out of his movies instead of, you know, trying to tear it down for the things I dislike about it. Sure. That's fair. I, I think. I think that's a big thing, right? Expectations play so much into how we experience a movie and what we take away from it. If you go into a movie yep. thinking one thing about it and that's not what you get, you know, my my example for that in my personal life was Event Horizon. You know, the first time I saw that movie was in theaters <laughs> and I was not prepared for what it was, and because of that I did not have a good time. Now I look at that movie and I think it's wonderful because I know what it is. And so my expectation mm-hmm. isn't being like expectation subversion is one thing, but when you're basically sold something and it's completely different, that's yeah. a it's a very tough pill to swallow. So, yeah, expectations play into it a lot. So, well, I'm glad I'm glad that you you know appreciated the movie, um, and you're not going to uh, you know send me a bill or come after me with pitchforks and torches uh, over yeah. over it. Um, yeah, it, was a good, it was a good experience. Well, good. And this was a good conversation. I enjoyed kind of just picking it apart and really talking about sort of the some of the, the different 
aspects of it uh, that were really cool. I had a couple of quick trivia bits I wanted to mention if I didn't already. Let me make sure. Um, yeah, go ahead. Let's do it. Uh, Nolan loves how Teddy randomly pops up unannounced as if the whole side story were not seen. Kind of mentioned that. I almost like the story told from Teddy's perspective. Um, uh, I think the idea of having some sort of like ancillary, like cause the, the, I think a problem with that would be if you were trying to, let's say, adapt this type of storytelling into a TV show, mm-hmm. which I don't think I've seen anything even remotely close. I'm, I'm sure that people have tried. Um, but if you're trying to adapt this type of asynchronous storytelling into a TV show where you're you're getting so many little bits and pieces uh, over uh, over a period of time, I don't think it works well for the story to have been told by multiple perspectives. Um, because you are inherently losing that one important fact about the the way the story is told and it being from the perspective of Leonard and how unreliable he is and how he has to re-remember and, and relearn everything mm-hmm. as you as you go through. Um, in a story on a TV show, you're going to get different perspectives from other people outside looking in at Leonard. Yeah. And yeah, it's going to definitely change your opinions about any number of the characters that are involved. Well, I, I think if you tell the story from Teddy's perspective, it ceases being a noir story or even noir influence, and it becomes a very different type of story at that point, right? Because now you're not following through Leonard's kind of reconstruction and deconstruction of everything as it's going on and his, the way that it's he tries to do It's kind of almost of mice and men in that way. A little bit, yeah. Yep. Um. Yeah. The other one was originally the entire Sammy Jankis story was being told in one scene in the movie, uh, but then Nolan kind of felt like it made more sense to sort of split that up and stretch it out and give us little bits as you went along. I think that worked better. I also love the the story that the script for this was basically written on a car ride between Chris and Jonathan Nolan as they were driving across country. Christopher (laughs) Nolan was moving to L.A., and he was driving across country with his brother, and they started talking about it, and they basically fleshed out the script during that car ride across the country. And uh, oh, to that, me, that's, that's like awesome. hearing like Home Alone, like, like Home Alone was written in a weekend. Yeah, because that, that story is pretty funny too. It is. So I, I love stuff like that. That's really really cool. Um, I did have yeah. a couple of audio clips too. I wanted to play um, because mm-hmm. they they did make me chuckle. Uh, so we had this one. Here's a couple from Leonard that I liked. Um, Must be his. I don't think they'd let someone like me carry a gun. No, no, they wouldn't. <laughs> it would be it would be difficult for you to obtain a license for a firearm. Um, but I just love I love his re- like he has that realization, and then Teddy's reaction was just like, "God, I hope not." Yeah, and that's the funny thing because he's already like handled a gun before I know. With Jimmy at that <laughs> yeah, point exactly, and you know um, he, he even like made that. Uh, made that conscious decision of like, let's. I need to take the bullets out of this gun just mm-hmm. in case because I don't want to like, you know, screw up and misremember something and shoot somebody. Yeah, which he does. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, there's a couple others that I, I liked the lines. Um, this one especially. How am I supposed to heal if I can't feel time? Because it's that idea, mm-hmm. right? That he, how is he supposed to move on from his wife if he can't tell? You know, there, there was also. Can't remember to forget you. Like, he can't move on from what happened because he can't remember that he needs to move on. It's always fresh yep. in his head. 
And that for me, um, was just one of those things like ah, it's, it, it, there's a, there's a tragic nature to Leonard's story going on while he's also manipulating oh, yeah. himself and being manipulated. And it's kind of heartbreaking. Um, and this is just Joe Pagliano being, being awesome. You know, I've had more rewarding friendships than this one. Although I do get to keep telling the same jokes. <laughs> that would just be great. Like he just gets to keep, uh, sort of like, did I tell you about Sammy Jankus? Yes. You tell me about Sammy. You tell everybody about Sammy. I'm tired of hearing about the guy. <laughs> like just loved it. Just loved it. Uh, honestly, this is a movie worth watching. And if you haven't watched it for a while, it's worth watching again. Um, yeah, I agree. It's worth watching for sure. Also, it is available on a bunch of the free, like ad supported streaming services, like 2B TV and all that. So if you don't already have it, like I do, um, you can find it there. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got it. <laughs> it's and, like, uh, oh yeah, flex. Or if you have uh, a library card, you can get it on Hoopla, um, which is a cool service that I like to oh, tout okay. because all you need is a library card and you basically create an account. Um, on their site and then you can borrow like um, I think it's three to five movies a month plus they have uh, comics and Not books um, Kindle books and stuff like that that you can get too so okay. I think it's really worth it but uh, but yeah this is this is a fun movie now where can people kind of find because you you stream a bunch of games what are you what are you streaming right now uh, I just finished up a series going through the first Homeworld game. Uh, okay. The, the remastered version of that. So I am starting to work on Homeworld 2, um, planning on releasing that on Fridays. Uh, what else have I been... Uh, I also finished up uh, Devil May Cry, like DMC Devil May Cry. Okay. The, the one that everybody hates. Mm-hmm. That I don't... I, I don't know. I like that game. It's 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 just fun, mindless, like hack and slash. Sure. Um, but lately, I've gotten back into Final Fantasy fourteen with a bigness. Uh, it's 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 taking my life. You and half the. Um, yeah, that's I've I've for I don't I've forgotten why I loved the game and I hadn't played it in like four and a half years and just kind of uh-huh. started picking it back up again. And I'm like, oh yeah, why did I get rid of this? What's wrong with me? Um, but. If if I stream, it is most often uh, it'll be like Eastern time in the mornings. Uh, you know, my work days are are on West Coast time, so I'm mm. up early in the morning anyway because East Coast. So uh, you find me on Twitch.tv slash Dice Tomato, uh, and on generally on Sundays we have our Tadpole Sunday race day. Yep. Uh, so we're out and about driving around in cars on Forza Horizon 5. I, I see that all the time. It looks pretty cool. Uh, that's awesome. So, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun times. Yep. Twitch.tv there, there, there slash... Happens. Oh, go ahead. Dice Tomato. Dice Tomato, yes. Yep, D-I-C-E-T-O-M-A-T-O. Awesome, awesome. So this show, uh, if you want to be like Ace Tigress or Nisbet or Phelan, uh Danny Orr was in there earlier, Essential Tremor, um, and Tanner Goodman as well, hanging out in our chat room. Uh, it's twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. I record Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time. I also do some game streams. Um, I do, uh, I've been lately playing just wandering around in Skyrim. Uh, just it's fun oh, way Morgan. to pass the time. It's it, <laughs> what I like about playing that. Number one, thank you for the name idea. Um, 
that came from you. But also, uh, it, it's a fun game because I can just kind of zone out and play and then chat with people, and it's a relaxing way to do it. So I'm having fun with that. Sirenex is in the chat room as well. Sorry, Sirenex, I didn't see you there. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis, where you can find my streaming. Um, this show goes up on Wednesdays as a podcast, anywhere you can get podcasts. Um, if you do listen on something like Apple or Spotify, leaving a rating and review does help the show become more discoverable. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, at TV's Travis, and I love to talk about uh, anything with anybody. So feel free to find me there. Uh, and uh, there's a new way to support my show and my content. Um, if you go to Kofi, ko-fi.com slash TV's Travis, you can uh, you can buy me a cup of coffee there um, and, uh, and support the show and help me to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, but uh, the biggest way is to download the show, listen to it, um, tell your friends about it, because, you know, the more people that I can get uh, listening in on these discussions, the better. Um, so dice, thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun. Um, and, uh, we'll have a good good time. Good, good. I'm glad I will. I'll, we'll have to find something that you haven't seen that, that, that we can talk through. I I know that list is, it's kind of few and far between, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I have a couple things. I know you're not a, you're not big into anime and I'm pretty sure there's some things that you haven't seen. There's definitely anime is a good place to start. I like anime, but I don't, uh, like I'm not, not a huge, I wouldn't call myself a gigantic anime fan, but most of the anime that I've watched, I've really enjoyed. Um, so that would be a good place to start, though, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, that is the show for this week. Thank you uh, for being here. Thank you, everybody in chat, uh, for hanging out. Thank you for it's having great. me. Um, and, uh, you know, next week, uh, I've got David Luzader. We're talking It's a Wonderful Life. That's going to be fun. Uh, so that'll be next week on Wait You Haven't Seen. grief you wandered into a Jaguar dealership. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>